You are listening to the cycling podcast of the 2023 Tour de France. Today, we're in Puy-de-Dôme. We had an early start this morning, didn't we, Mitch? We were up before half past six and left our hotel in Limoges while the UAE team Emirates chef was busy at work in his truck kitchen making breakfast for the team staff and ultimately the riders they wouldn't have had to get started quite so early because it's been a real late start to the stage today 145 they rolled out of San Leonard de Nobla and it means it's going to be a really late finish here going to be well after six o'clock even if they're on the fastest schedule but we've made it to the base of Le Puy de Dom and well what have we done so far today well, we drove here and you headed off on the little choo-choo train all the way up the side of the mountain and left me to my own devices to sort of actually just go and absorb the vibe of the Tour de France. Look, it was only 11 in the morning, but I cruised up the side of the mountain. It was 5k to go and I wanted to see how far up the mountain I could walk. Ultimately, I was weaving through people already setting up for the day and I got to the 4k to go spot and that's where they had it blocked off. That was it. That's as far as you could go as the crowd and I just sort of had a chat to a few people around there and just sort of try to understand you know why they come out to the side of the road here what time they sort of left what their whole sort of daily routine was like had a chat to Marcel have a listen to what he had to say I'm standing here with Marcel he's from Dijon he got up here at nine in the morning tell me Marcel why have you come up here to see today what are you what are you looking forward to the first thing I was looking to was the place it's gonna be more and more crowded here, so I have to take the best place. So just at the base of the Puy Dome, which is just next to us, it's you have a beautiful, uh, beautiful sea here. It's good to wait for for hours just in the sun and enjoy. At the end of the day, just five seconds of climbers climbing this amazing, uh, amazing climb. Well, like you said, the race doesn't start for another two hours. You've already been here for two hours, two and a half hours. I guess my question is, is it worth it? Yeah, 100%. You just maybe need one screen here to see the, the race, and, but the screen is a little far from here, so we're just going to wait and wait and wait and see the leaders of the race uh, battling to the top. Who are you going to see battling today? Who do you want to see going for the victory? Definitely Roman Bardet because he's from the area and I hope... I saw him when I was in kind of training camp in Tenerife and I told him, yeah, you have to win this one because it's the one I think you always dreamed of. So just go for it. And he said, yeah, I agree. He just said, I'm going to try. Ladies and gentlemen, the train will leave in a very short time. Please go to the train very well, Mitch, you're right. I went up on the little choo-choo train, as you put it. And, uh, well, yesterday I think I described it as a funicular railway. It's not actually a funicular railway because that requires cables to pull it up the side of the hill. It's just a rack railway. It wouldn't ordinarily uh, be able to roll uphill without the sort of rack system. I'm not really a, a huge railway, railway enthusiast. I'm a little out of my depth here. But thank you to Oscar from Sweden and a number of other people for correcting me on the type of railway that's here at Le Puy de Dom. And I went up to the top. 
What was it like up there? Because visually from here, it's quite amazing to look at it. It's just like, it is like a, a dome. It sort of just goes up and you can see the road winding around like you've described it. What's it like at the top? I reckon that's why they called it Le Puy de Dome. Eh? Eh? We're onto something here. It is amazing. The road, I've said it uh, in the kilometre zero about Le Puy de Dome. It's like a sort of giant corkscrew. It winds its way around the side of the cone. And then when you pop out at the top, it was quite surreal up there. They've set up the minimal amount of Tour de France paraphernalia. There's a finish line. There's a little sort of uh, area for the TV journalist to interview the the stage winner and and, and uh, maybe one or two other riders. There's really not a lot of room up there at all, which is why they've restricted access to all of the media. I was up there long enough to have a quick look round, Mitch, and I have to say the views were absolutely spectacular. You can see for miles from all around the top. It's a pretty much a 360 degree view from the top there. And it's a little bit hazy in the distance, but you can still see a very, very long way. And so I can imagine when people first went up there, and looked out, they must have felt like they were on the top of the world. I thought, I might be stuck up here till nine o'clock quite easily. Depending on how many of the media and officials go up there, the train itself takes around 20 minutes to go one way. So it's a 40 minute round trip, obviously. And I thought, well, I'll get back down and meet up with you, not least because you had the picnic. I didn't have any food with me and I thought it would be a long afternoon up there. As the train went up, I got a really good view of the road. It's narrow, it's only just wider than a car's width. The gendarme are kind of placed at, uh, what, 50 metre intervals, I guess just to make sure no spectators get onto the road. You almost wouldn't know the Tour de France is going to be there because there's no banners up for 3k to go or 2k to go or 1k to go. There's just a sign painted on the road and it feels quite eerie. It's going to be a real spectacle because the riders will have the whole road to themselves. There'll be no fans in the way. Although it will lack that kind of atmosphere, I think it will create quite a strange and unique atmosphere of its own. But the picnic, Mitch, we've had a lovely afternoon down here. Uh, we had our ham and cheese baguette. We had our six pack of water, I should point out. Slightly disappointed we didn't manage to get any Volvic water, which is the, the local water from the volcanic spa. And uh, we're refueled and refreshed and ready to go and get on the barrier, four and a bit K to go, and watch the race come past. It's time for the tale of the attack. So stage nine then got underway at San Leonard de Noblat, the town where Raymond Poulidor spent the great uh, chunk of his life and it finishes here at Le Puy de Dome, of course, where Raymond Poulidor had that shoulder-to-shoulder battle with Jacques Onquetil. A bit of news from the morning, the US road champion Quinn Simmons was a non-starter, suffering from the effects of the crash on, I think it was stage five, wasn't it? And Astana, Alexander Vinukarov has moved quickly to say that if Mark Cavendish wants to carry on next year, a contract will be on the table. Wow. Wow, that's amazing. Um, that's great. You know, great confidence. You know what? But creates a little bit more turmoil in, turmoil in his mind. They're just sort of baiting him. And once again, I, I bet you his wife's really loving this sort of talk. <laughs> well, uh, the ball will at least be in his court, I guess, so he can make the decision he wants to make. Uh, the race itself, the break went early, and it's a big one, a powerful one, and as we speak, they're over 10 minutes up the road. It's got the King of the Mountains jersey holder, Nielsen Paulus of EF in there, Matej Mohoric of Bahrain Victorious, Clement Berthet of 
AG2R, two Movistar riders, Gorka Izagire and Matteo Jorgensen, two Israel Premier Tech riders, Mike Woods, who was talking up his chances of perhaps um, well, being in the mix on the climb, he says the climb will suit him, but he would need to be in the break, and lo and behold he is. He's in there with his teammate Guillaume Boivin, Victor Campanarts of Lotto Destiny's in there, David de la Cruz and Alexi Lutsenko of Astana, Matthew Bergadeau and Pierre Latour of Total Energies, and Jonas Abrahamson and Jonas Gregor of Uno X. So, as we speak, 10 minutes up the road, we will anticipate them getting to the bottom of the climb I guess just tell us about this climb on look I don't know much about it I don't think a lot of people know a lot about the history of this climb like as we already said it hasn't been here since 88 or Le Puy de Dom's been here since long before 1988 it's a it's an extinct volcano it's, it's been here for thousands and thousands of years the tour, right, de, the tour right. de France hasn't been here <laughs> since 88 yeah, well, what, what happened on this climb and, and what's sort of happened since? Why have we not been back here? There was quite a lot of information in the Kilometre Zero which went out a day or so ago, but it's one of the great climbs of the Tour de France. Back in 1952, the Tour de France had its first ever summit finish and that was at Alp d'Huez and that was predominantly to promote the ski resort up there. Before that, there had been no mountain summit finishes in Tour de France. They'd always gone over the mountain and finished down in the towns. Mm. But once it had been established that they could go and finish at Alpe d'Huez, they came and finished a stage here on Le Puy de Dom the same year, 1952. Fausto Coppi won them both. And there have just been some really big moments in Tour history here. Federico Bajamontes clinched his Tour win in 1959 by winning the mountain time trial here. And a little note of trivia, it's actually Bahamonte's 95th birthday today. He is the oldest living Tour de France winner. Happy birthday, Federico. In 1964, that incident I talked about with Jacques Anquetil and Raymond Poulidor, where they went shoulder to shoulder. The big duel, Poulidor's best chance to win the Tour. Of course, he never did win the Tour, never wore the yellow jersey, despite finishing on the podium so many times. And L'Equipe, the newspaper created an image of Pogacar and Vingegaard, the two kind of Onkatil and Poulidor figures of this year's tour, in a similar pose on their front page this morning, which was, which was pretty striking. And then in 75, it was where Eddie Merckx's long reign as the number one rider in the tour came to an end. A spectator punched him on the side. Yeah. Punched him? Punched him? Stuck his arm out from the crowd, punched him on the side, <laughs> caught him on the lower back, and the injuries... Um, it meant that Merckx eventually lost the yellow jersey and any chance of winning a sixth Tour de France. And then, uh, well, as you say, 1988 was the last time it came here. And I asked Matt White, sports director at Jaco Alula, what he knew about the Tour and Le Puy de Dom. Can you remember the last time it went to Le Puy de Dom, Matt? 1988, Johnny Welch. The only reason I know it was Johnny is Johnny was a sports director with me back in Garmin, my first couple of years as a sports director. And I knew that he'd won uh, on Puy de Dome. And I said, I actually thought it was 87, but 88 was the year. And I, we haven't been up there since. And it's not, a, it's not a climb that gets used even before that very often. I mean, how were you following the Tour de France back in 88? Were you, were you into cycling then? 88 was my first year into cycling, 14 years of age, and was watching videos that people in the local cycling club had brought back to Australia on VHS and put in their suitcase. So I think I watched the 87 Tour de France in, at the end of 88. And funny enough, the first, how I got into cycling was we had a, a television show in Australia called Wide World of Sports. And they did a documentary, and I'm pretty sure it was August or September, about Phil Anderson. And I saw that, yeah, that was a couple of months after the tour. 
1987, that was one of the triggers for me to get into cycling. Seeing that, I remember coming home on a Saturday afternoon, I was doing other sports at the time, and I saw this documentary, this little 15 minute clip of Phil Anderson, the story of him and how a young Australian went to Europe, and it just something, that was one of the triggers for me to take up the sport. I had no parents involved in cycling. Loved my sport, did my rugby league and my athletics and stuff, and I got a bike for Christmas 1987, and uh, that's where it all started. Apparently, Mitch, the very first cyclist to ride up Le Puy de Dom was a rider from the local area called Fernand Ladoux and he did it in 1892. He was a mechanic by trade and he wanted to see if it could be done. He was also a founding member of the Velos Club Auvergnat, which is a local cycling club and their president was none other than Marcel Michelin, the man who invented the tyres and owned the company. There we are. But the one big thing about it is because the railway was put in and because it's a UNESCO uh, World Heritage Site, Le Puy de Dom has really been out of bounds for the Tour de France uh, for the last 35 years. And it was Christian Prudhomme's vision to bring the race back to the Tour. Hence, my Kilometre Zero episode was called Le Puy de Prudhomme because it really was an obsession of the race directors to bring the Tour back here. But it also meant for the teams, there were logistical challenges wrecking the climb. Now the organisers had a day or day or two before the Dauphiné where teams could come and recce. I know that Ineos, uh, Jumbo Visma, Bahrain, one or two others took up that opportunity. Matt White of Jayco said they didn't bother because they didn't feel that there was too much they could learn beyond looking at the gradients. Anyway, I spoke to Steve Cummings, sports director of Ineos Grenadiers, about what he learned about Le Puy de Dom. It's a UNESCO World Heritage Site and um the downhill 28k to go so you're on big wide road 28k to go you go right and then you cross a railway and you go quite fast downhill and from there it's going to be difficult to move because you pass the town of Clermont-Ferrand and straight after that town you start to climb so the start of the climbs on big wide road there is a sort of a flatter section just before the road goes up again and then shortly after that where the bus parking is it goes narrow for the last 4k and then it's just a constant gradient round yeah round to the finish uh, 4k around 10 11 percent so the road's always kind of in front of you have you ever ridden it nah <laughs> no, i didn't read it so uh it was open so it's as i say i've been there twice now and you can't go on the last 4k you can only take a train up and down so they opened it before the dauphiné for one day for the riders so the riders rode it yeah, so I've been to like 4K to go. How many riders were there? It was like a sort of secret meeting of the Tour de France peloton? Yeah, I don't know. Movie Star were there, Jumbo were there, UAE. We were there. Maybe Trek, I can't remember. Um, so maybe, maybe, maybe around 15, 20 riders, yeah. So you know as much as you possibly can about it, but perhaps not as much as you would about a climb that the Tour de France and other races visit regularly. Does that change things? No, not really. I think... It'll be interesting as well because it's a narrow road and there's like specific regulations around following cars and extra feeds. Um, that presents a, like more of a like logistical challenge and stuff like that. Only one car per team, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, and and it's going to be really difficult to pass. So, a bit Giro style. <laughs> but not even something you've done in a, an amateur race or. A no. no, no, just watch that. There's a video, isn't there? A clip somewhere. I've seen that clip and, and that's it. You, you know the roads. I'm not sure if the wind is a factor. I guess the guys have done it, so that's probably more important than me doing it, really. 
Mitch, 68 kilometres to go, and that lead group of 14 have now got over 11 minutes. So they are going to make it to the bottom of the climb ahead, aren't they? Yeah, definitely, I think. And look, depending what the gap is at the bottom, obviously I'm saying something very obvious here, but they could be just letting it go now and just see a GC race behind. Um, this is a perfect scenario for Jumbo Visma. They're just going to have to control it. They're not going to have to overexert themselves. And then they'll have the natural run-in and race on the climb. So as a GC team, they've played this very well today. One of the factors when teams uh, in the peloton decide whether or not they want to bring back a break on a mountain stage or let it go, one of the factors is whether the climb is going to be really, really crowded with people. Now, we know that the road is narrow here, but it's clear of people. There's not going to be fans narrowing the road down even further. For the riders, it will actually be wider than if they were going to ride Alpe d'Huez. Is that some kind of factor too because having a big break that's coming back at them there's not going to be any issues for the GC riders catching drop riders from the break it's not going to get too cluttered it's not going to get too you know there's not going to be too much confusion and chaos up there because the road will be clear I think there's an element of that I think also an element of they don't need to bring back every single break every single day you know and just controlling it and 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 also putting the pressure back on other teams to say hey look if you guys want to go for the stage win, go for it. Come up and help us. And it's a, it's an idea to try and draw other teams in to help them as well. Seeing as no one's coming up, they're like, cool. We don't need to have every stage win in the Tour de France, let alone, or go for every stage win in the Tour de France. Um, no doubt, it's still going to be a hard day for everyone because there's going to be the fight into the climb. And having driven up, you know, three quarters of the climb today, it's very, very tough, and we've seen it. It's a steep climb. It is barricaded most of the way up, so like you said, it's not going to be the same feel as we saw, especially in the Basque country. Yeah, I mean, the best-placed rider overall in that break is Clement Berthet of AG2R. He's 26 minutes 56 down, and then there's Mike Woods, who's 28 minutes 16 down. So the break, I mean, it's not going to trouble the GC. It's not like letting somebody back into the picture. I mean, Mike Woods will jump up the GC if he um, keeps... A fair chunk of that time but it's not changing the overall dynamic of the race so I think we're going to have one of those days where there's going to be two races to keep an eye on the race for the stage win and then the battle between Jonas Vingegaard and Tadej Pogacar so we should wander up and see how far up we can get make sure we pack one of our bottles of water and our sun cream you've got your Lancefield cricket club hat on I've got my map baseball cap on we're going to keep the sun off our heads that's important too well, I'm hoping my friend I met up there, Marcel from Dijon, he said to me, I've sa- I'm going to save your spot on the barrier here. I'm going to hold him to his word. Let's go f- find him. The Cycling Podcast at the 2023 Tour de France is supported by Science in Sport. Science in Sport, fueled by science. Science in Sport Chief Executive Stephen Moon's interest in the Tour de Lensar started with a picture on social media. He saw a photograph of an innovative approach to fixing a puncture. It all started with a powerful image of a, an inner tube tied up with string and, and, and you've drawn attention to some of the conditions. But for me, there was a, a photograph last year where Ibrahim Jalo, who's, I think he's now in Dubai, um, had won the race and was being lifted in the air. There was a huge crowd around him. And it was, for me, it was the iconic sports picture of the year. Because not just the joy on his face, but the joy of people around him. You thought, you know, look at that level of enthusiasm. And and, and in the end, it, you know, it just brings you back to 
how cycling invokes such passion in people. It's just the faces of everyone in the crowd. And I must have looked at that photograph a million times and thought, yeah, yeah, let, you know, let's push on here. Anything we can do to develop this race, we're going to do. Jorgensen's coming up alone. He's just on five to go. Uh, the crowd's going wild here. It looks good. He was dripping wet, but he looked in control. was a sh big, big difference in pace, wasn't it? That moment that Kelderman's bit was done and Kush was going to take over, Vingegaard right on Kush's wheel and then Pogacar, Simon Yates was in there just moving his way up, looks like the selection's about to start from this point, doesn't it? Yeah, it's already happened already, but now we're talking about the final selection, it was only so yeah, a small group, I guess 30 riders at that point, um, looks like uh, Van Aert coming now. So yeah, it'd be interesting to hear these Belgian guys go off here. Let's have a listen. Well, Mitch, that was us with about five kilometres to go on the climb, capturing the atmosphere. And the comment you made was the difference between mm. the pace of the riders in the break and the riders in the GC battle. We'll talk about the GC battle in the first part, but really it was the race for the stage win that captured everybody's imagination this afternoon. We've managed to get down from the volcano and we're now sitting in a very attractive square here in the centre of Clermont-Ferrand, next to the cathedral here, the Notre Dame. And, well, if you look around, Mitch, it might appear a bit grubby it's, yeah. a, it's a dark black building but actually it's uh, it doesn't need a good wash it's made from a black lava stone so it's supposed to look like that and apparently like Le Puy de Dom itself it's visible from quite a long way away but today's stage was absolutely breathtaking stuff wasn't it and I suppose it's a bit too easy to characterize it as heartbreak for Matteo Jorgensen of Movistar and joy for Israel Premier Tech's Michael Woods uh, obviously Michael Woods will be overjoyed by that stage victory but the battle between them on the climb it was a real clash of styles a real clash of rider types really wasn't it it really was and then there's two things there I think both the riders showed a lot of confidence today you know Jorgensen going very early and going the only way I can win this is to go solo early it takes a lot of guts to do that but then again on the flip side Mike Woods having the guts and the confidence to go that's not my tactic I'm staying here I know what I can do on this final climb at one moment there I think it was that he had about two minutes two minutes 15 at about 4k to go or four and 5k to go when they went past us the gap was huge it felt huge on the side of the road at that moment there I thought it was gone it was extraordinary though wasn't it I mean the patience Woods must mm. have had the calmness to not go too early not overcommit, but judge it just right and I mean he really did judge it just right he drew up to the back wheel of Jorgensen and he took a deep breath 
a second deep breath, maybe a third deep breath, and then hit him again to clinch the stage. And Mitch, you said it, once he was away and the gap was opened and he was out of the saddle, he just looked like he was enjoying the moment. I mean, as Tour de France stage win, he's been close before. He was third at Le Grand Bonand behind uh, Dylan Turns in 2021 and third again in Foix last year when, of course, his Israel teammate Hugo Uhl won the stage. But no secret, having won a couple of welter stages, Woods wanted to win a Tour de France stage just to put the seal on a, on a career in cycling after his previous career as a runner. <laughs> well, I know he put a lot into this. We spoke about it at the start of the, at the, start of the race that you know, I spoke with his personal soigneur. He was you know, in great condition. He got through the Basque Country very well and he slipped off the GC you know, the last few days. So he switched over to the stage. I know his parents are here as well. As you said, I know it was probably only about four, three, four hundred metres that once he went past Jorgensen, he had that moment where I think I've got this in the bag. The thing about those last three or four hundred metres is that they do drag. It was really steep. About 20, 30 minutes, wasn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. We heard from Dirk de Mol at the finish, or I I was around the Israel Premier Tech bus at the finish, and Dirk de Mol, the sports director, was saying, explaining that the reason that Woods had dropped out of the GC battle was because he had a couple of days where he had a bit of a funny stomach and wasn't feeling his best. And that's given him you know the opportunity the freedom to go in that break and well if he was going to win a stage in the tour you know mm. identifying that climb and knowing that he had to get into that break that's one thing but it almost looked like he'd let it get out of hand because Jorgensen was up the road then there was Nielsen Paulus the king of the mountains then in that group as well Mate Mohoric and Matthew Bergado of Total Energies and we kind of said Woods has blown it here what is mm. he doing why didn't he react when Jorgensen went I mean it was too far out 47-ish kilometres to go but when the Paulus break went he bided his time and waited till the climb to make his move ice cool you got it <sighs> He must have been freaking out there. Uh, And also, to go back on that other note too, dropping out of GC and going for stages, that's all good and well to say, but actually capitalising on that plan is so much harder than it sounds. Oh, yeah, we're going to just drop off GC and just grab a stage here and there. Until you actually go and do that, you know, I think it also puts pressure on you weirdly. It adds a different style of pressure. It eases the pressure of GC, but all of a sudden now you've got to win a stage. You should win a stage. You're a GC hope. Should be getting one stage should be easy. They did it well last year though, didn't they? Simon Clark won the cobbled stage, and then Ool won in the Pyrenees, as I said. And well, they've got a team of stage hunters. They chose not to bring Chris Froome for a kind of maybe a, a final hurrah. Maybe Froome would have been a stage hunter, although there was no real indication of of that. Mitch is pulling faces here, listeners. Um, yeah, there was no real uh, no real chance of that. But Michael Woods, he's made the tour for Israel Premier Tech. Poor old Jorgensen, though. It was a great ride. It was a great it was, ride. It was, yeah. And, and he can't be too disappointed, but you could see the sort of deflation on the line when he got pipped by Pierre Latour for second and then Matej Mohoric for third and ended up finishing fourth. But nevertheless, as you say, being a heavier rider, a very good climber, but a heavier rider on a climb that steep, his only tactic was to try and go early. And just the holding that gap at a minute pretty remarkable because it didn't go up to a comfortable advantage and it never really came down so that just shows the consistency that he was riding at well i think it's also a real maturity for a younger rider to not freak out to no one understand his ability 
and to hold that gap. And then when he went past us at about four and a half k to go, he looked very calm, cool, and collected. And continually throughout that climb, only in the final kilometre or k and a half, that he started to sort of show a bit of strain in his face and move around a bit. All things considered, it was a, a really, really big ride from him too. One thing we can say is that Matteo Jorgensen will win a Tour de France stage mm. at some point. I mean, it's important to remember he's still a very young man. He's only 24, got a lot of time ahead of him. And as we've said this before on the podcast, in Movistar, in a funny way, he has an awful lot of freedom, really, doesn't he? Being not Spanish, it's a very Spanish team, isn't it, Movistar? And so, in a funny way, he gets maybe more opportunities in that team that he might not get in, I don't know, Lidl Trek or even EF education. I mean, he'd be competing with Nielsen Paulus for a start, wouldn't he, for that kind of free role? Uh, it's true. There's, there's, there's big positives of going into a foreign team like that, but there's also a lot of hard sort of hurdles he has to get over. The language barrier, the culture barrier. I overheard his sports director when I was waiting for an interview myself, Patchy Villa, say... He speaks fantastic Spanish. He's immersed himself in the vo- in the culture. He fits in the team. So it sounds like he was already aware of those sort of hurdles and speed umps that could derail him. He's like, I'm immersing myself in the situation. I'm going to become part of this team. So I think exactly what you say, he's got the freedom now because all those other little things he, he's really enjoying. You know Mike Woods well. You've been near neighbours in Girona for a, a period of time. I mean, this is the, the crowning of a career. He came to cycling late. He's 36 years old. I'm not writing him off yet because he's got plenty of uh, gas in the tank. But to win a Tour de France stage, uh, exceptional stuff. You know, I think also, especially not coming from a European you know, country, the most common question you get you know, when you come back to, say, Canada or Australia or New Zealand or whatever it is, have you ridden the Tour de France? Obviously, you can say, tick, have you won a stage? And he can say a big, fat tick on that one too. And it's not all about that, but it's, it's just nice to know that he was, he was been good enough for years, as you said, third, very close. It just hasn't quite happened. Maybe that was his inexperience coming later into the peloton, but he's finally put all the, all the pieces together the, you know, the calmness and the tactics in his own mind. I know that's something he works on a lot. He's just understanding what he needs to do in his own mind. Um, psychology of the sport. He's put it together today, fantastically. And I mean, the role of honour on Le Puy de Dom. I mean, the Tour hasn't oh, been there yeah. for 35 years, as we've been saying repeatedly. But he's up there with legends of the sport. Extraordinary. Uh, incredible stuff. Uh, now, I speculated earlier on whether the brake and the GC race would become all kind of combined as if they'd got into a washing machine and all the, the socks had got mixed mm. up with the pants. That didn't happen at all the, the, because I think they, they let the gap go out to a big advantage, 15-odd minutes at the bottom of the climb. But we really ought to focus in the next part on the GC battle because, well, it lit up again, didn't it? But before that... We're going to hear from a man who had pretty much the best seat in the house this afternoon. This is Seb Piquet, the voice of Radio Tour, sitting at the back of the back. And what a day it was in race direction, car number two doing race radio. And what a contrast it was between the first kilometres of the climb with so many spectators on the side of the road and then silence for the last four and a half k's a moment that i will certainly remember for a very long time watching the best riders in the world battle it out 
And that battle, that mano a mano between Pogacar and Vingegaard's like Poulidor and Antille. Pogacar eventually gaining one meter, two meters, three meters, and then eight seconds on the line. It was a stage that many will remember, the return to the Puy de Dôme. Back then, Michael Woods was one year old and certainly not considering becoming a cyclist. And hopefully, it'll take less than 35 years before we returned to the Puy de Dôme. Well, whether it was a cycling podcast effect, we were in the same hotel as UAE Team Emirates last night, weren't we? And today, Pogacar will be feeling pretty comfortable tonight, won't he? He's chiseled away another little bit of Jonas Vingegaard's advantage with that attack towards the end. And, well, Vingegaard of Jumbo Visma now leads by only 17 seconds after nine hard days of racing. And if you look at the mountain stages or the climbing stages, all of that advantage that and that confidence and that sense that Vingegaard was really just going to pluck the Tour de France from the tree like selecting a ripe piece of fruit. It doesn't look like that now, does it? Just a few days on, Pogacar has fought back not once, but now twice. It's really, really interesting. The Tour is just sort of really just developing into this amazing sort of script. Jumbo Visma, though, are still looking like very much in control. The job they did on the climb, the job they did into the climb, Fantastic. You can't fault them as a team at the moment. Wilco Kelderman, Walt Van Aert, even Dylan Van Baal, all of them as a team of Sepp Kuss, of course. At the end of the day, today Pogacar, he, he, he saw his opportunity and he went for it. And, and he when he attacked, that's something I notice quite often with the GC guys. Of course, I've got no idea what it's like. But when they attack, someone jumps in their wheel, they're very quick to stop. This is something I absolutely loved about today. Pogacar today was he just committed to the attack it did not matter that Jonas was in his wheel it was like I am going to just ride you out of my wheel I'm just going to commit to the line and it was an absolute drag race to the line there were only a few bike lengths in it for what it seemed like a kilometer until he finally got a little bit more of a gap this is really really tough racing it's it's so exciting to see this battle I want to ask you about Jumbo Visma because you're right they've got numbers Wout van Aert did a huge turn again. Wilco Kelderman, very valuable. Sepp Kuss really turns the screw, doesn't he, and, and lights it up. But is the problem slightly that Vingegaard and Pogacar are that bit so much better than the rest that the idea of trying to isolate Pogacar and have maybe two or three Jumbo Visma riders around Vingegaard late on the climb actually isn't practical. It isn't going to work because Pogacar's got that jump having Sepp Kuss there wouldn't actually make a great deal of difference because basically it is going to be mano a mano between Pogacar and Vingegaard and they're going to have to sort it out amongst themselves. So there's almost a sort of glass ceiling of what Jumbo Visma can do. There is, there is, but they can also control it and race it the way they want to race it. You know, I think Vingegaard really likes the tempo. You know, he doesn't like that erratic sort of, you know, attack and, you know, high, high watts and then dropping back to a tempo. You know, he seems like a bit more of a Chris Froome style to me. You know, have his team really keep a high tempo, keep it in control. So that way, Jumbo Visma can ride the race they want to race. They can also send guys like, as we've already seen, Walt Van Arna up the road. You know, deploy different tactics like that. And I think there's going to be a way to crack Pogacar in doing that. Their team is very, very strong. And it is, I know everyone keeps saying it, it's so early in the race. 
it is still time. It is still early. And one of the things you need in your back pocket is a strong team. Yeah, Marijn Zeman of Jumbo Visma, the, the boss of the team, made that point pretty clearly at the team bus tonight that the Tour de France is three weeks long. It's not nine days long. There's time for this to all swing back in Vingegaard's favour. And, of course, there are stages in the final week where uh, a lot of difference could be made. It was an interesting day on GC, though, wasn't it? Because Simon Yates, who crashed yesterday, lost those 47 seconds, he was looking pretty sprightly. And mm. he said at the finish that he was suffering a bit with the uh, injuries from yesterday. You asked Matt White about that yesterday night and he didn't like the question did he because obviously it was a bit early to say but also they were probably smarting a bit really because mm. Yates had gone down in one of those kind of silly crashes uh, Yates made the point that he actually felt better when he was out of the saddle it was when he was sitting down that he was in the most discomfort but he looked lively but didn't really press on the advantage when maybe he could have done and might well have latched onto the coattails of Vingegaard and Pogacar who knows the thing I liked most about Yates is that he's looking to win the race. He's looking to get time. He's, he's, looking not, he's not just content to try and hang on and, you know, I'll be the best of the rest. It's like, I don't care. If the pace slows up, I'm going for it. You know, despite his feelings from yesterday, his sore back today or whatever was going on, his mind is aggressive. He wants to move forward in the GC. You know, often we see guys that end up third, fourth, fifth on GC who just sort of tag along and, you know, accumulate time over the race. I love this from Yates. He's just like, I'm going for it. I'm going to be the guy to attack. Well, everyone lost time to Pogacar today in the GC race, didn't they? But not catastrophically. Carlos Rodriguez was a minute behind Pogacar. Just in front of him, Tom Pidcock. So Ineos Grenadiers, you have to say, have had a good day. Pidcock has moved up the GC from 9th to 7th. Uh, Jai Hindley sort of hung on in there, didn't he? I mean, dropped, but then dug in and limited his losses all the way to the line. And, well, Adam Yates is still there for Pogacar. I mean, not riding for his own GC uh, hopes, but he's definitely in there alongside his team leader when he's needed. L'étape de demain, le dîner d'hier. Tomorrow's stage, yesterday's dinner. No stage tomorrow, Mitch. Rest day. First rest day of the Tour de France. What are you planning to do? Well, should I explain the stage for myself then? Yes. Look in your own personal roadbook and tell me All what's right. on the menu tomorrow. Let's have a look here. I'm going to get up early. I'm going to head out. I'm going to go for a long run tomorrow. I'm going to try and burn some of these calories I've been consuming all week. How, how long is a long run? I'm thinking about hitting a 20. 20K? Yep. Impressive. Come Impressive. back, refresh a little bit, and then there is the big game. The big cricket game, the press room versus the teams. So all the press who are in, you know, whether they're writers or podcasters or whatever, we've, we've gathered together. We're going to make a team and we're going to verse staff and writers from writers. the peloton. Who's, who's going to show up? I mean, Ben O'Connor's a... Apparently Jai's coming. Man. He's going to be wearing his yellow jersey. <laughs> Jai's opening the batting, is he? Jai is going to be... Sam yeah, Wellsford's going yeah. to be there. Durbridge is going to I'm, come. I'm not sure about this. I'm this, not sure about this. So that's that's my day tomorrow. I, I thought you'd be really reluctant to mention cricket tonight, Mitch. No. Given the ashes. Well, we've got to let you guys back in because <laughs> otherwise it would have been so boring. So now we've actually got a game on. Uh, today was the first day when I didn't have to pretend that I couldn't get the Ashes commentary on my phone. <laughs> uh, <laughs> unusually. 
Well, that sounds like a lovely rest day. We will, of course, tomorrow be joined by Ian Boswell, fresh from the Etape du Tour, which he's ridden today. We'll look forward to hearing all about that. We'll have a day off from the podcast. Kilometre Zero will continue, though, with the second part of Francois Tomaso's Tour Tales. That will be on the Friends of the Podcast feed tomorrow morning. If you want to become a friend of the podcast, go to thecyclingpodcast.com. You can sign up for an annual subscription or, for the first time, a monthly subscription. It costs about the same as a couple of cups of cappuccino a month, so great value. Loads of episodes to listen to, not just from this Tour de France, but from the last few years of the Friends of the Podcast uh, programmes. But last night's dinner, Mitch, we went to a place just on the outskirts of the north of Limoges. It had a kind of holiday camp feel, didn't it? There was a very nice vintage Citroen Ami car sitting outside. Uh, We were sat out on the terrace and, well, maybe the food didn't quite match up to the settings. I I ordered something which I thought was going to be sausagey, but it turned out to be basically sausages in a curry sauce. It was most unusual. It was called Les Tables de Brut Bistrot, um, and a really, really nice setting. It was almost like we were in a bit of safari setting. You're sitting in this sort of outdoor area with like a tent over the top. The atmosphere was amazing last night. There were a lot of people out eating and drinking last night. The food was, it was okay, considering where we were staying, which felt like quite an industrial area. We went for a yeah. bit of a kilometre walk, as we alluded to last night in the podcast, through a bit of a forest, and the next thing you knew, we arrived at this pretty amazing restaurant. Yeah, that park was amazing, wasn't it? People were having barbecues and, and staying out, enjoying the summer evening. Uh, didn't see today Pogaccio out there. He was obviously tucked up in bed. Um, but here we are, Clermont Ferrand now for three nights. What a luxury on the Tour de France that is. So we will be able to uh, look up a restaurant tomorrow night, this evening... I've gone for the very not Clément Ferrand dish of sauerkraut. But we're at a sort of German-type bistro, so, Mm. well, why not? Maybe a cheeky darts game later. If you can find a darts board, I'll I'll take you on. I'll take you on. I mean, I've got to let you guys back into it. (laughs) Thank you very much, Mitch. I really enjoyed our day on Le Puy de Dom. It was an early start. We did have a slight siesta in the afternoon. We enjoyed our lovely picnic. I had a little train ride and uh, the race was sensational. So let's hope it continues in that vein next week. Enjoy your rest day. Thank you, Lionel. Looking forward to the Doughboy getting on board. The Cycling Podcast was created in 2013 by Richard Moore, Daniel Freeb, and Lionel Burney.